0: This is a recording of a sermon from Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit lightsandiego.com. My name is Benji. It's good to uh, get to be with you guys and hear Australians together and talk about Easter. And what an exciting time. I can't believe what God is doing in this little baby church, and so it's amazing to get to be here with you guys. Uh, four o'clock service is incredible. It's, it's packed out, but it'll never be as cool as six. Um, it's important that you guys know that. And tonight we are, uh, are going to be kind of coming to an end to this series, Living for the Weekend, uh, and we're going to be obviously concluding that on Easter, but tonight we're going to be talking about uh, a part of that weekend that Jesus lived for, and that was the cross, and I can't think of, I think a lot of times we have a Good Friday service and we talk about the cross, but we immediately rush into Easter. And I think what's neat about this is let's just take the next two weeks and let's focus on the cross of Christ. And, but here's, this is my challenge for you. My challenge for you is that you do not leave here tonight with information, uh, but you leave here tonight with transformation. And there is a world of difference there. And the reality is we can step into a church and, or hear a lecture or someone preach, and we're trying to take notes, and, and that's fine. We're trying to learn. But the idea of the Scriptures is not for us just to gain knowledge, but it's for us to be changed more and more into the image of Christ. And there's nothing more transformative than the cross. And so uh, with that being said, I would like to pray before we dive into the message. And as we pray, I would like to actually invite the Holy Spirit, to change us as we talk about the greatest event in human history. The event that has changed the world, has changed our lives, and it's through the cross of Christ. So would you do me a favor? Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Well, let's just take a moment before we dive into something. Father, we, we come to you, we approach your word with humility Or that we'd have a teachable spirit. And Lord, beyond that, we'd have a moldable heart. Lord, we confess that the cross is something familiar. It's something we see all over the place. We've sung about it. We've heard about it. It's on our fashion. It's on buildings. It's on commercials. But Lord, just because it is familiar, would it never become ordinary? Would it never become predictable or mundane or tamed? But Lord, I pray that the wild reality of the cross would overtake our hearts tonight like it never has before, in a fresh way. And Holy Spirit, we need you to do that in us, God. Apart from you, we will just learn and we will digest information, but we are not here to be informed, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, Lord Jesus, by the washing of your word over us, Lord. So we just welcome that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to be all over the place tonight in Scripture, but uh, we'll spend the most of the time at the end of the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, you can kind of bookmark that. Uh, We're going to be there in a few minutes. Uh, but as we approach this topic of the cross, we, we have to first stop for a second. And we're going to have to address some terms, some vocabulary that is significant in understanding the cross. And these words are loaded terms, right? They're loaded with, they're just packed full and it's kind of like this suitcase right here. And um, I don't know about you, but I have a problem with suitcases. I have broken almost every single suitcase in my house. Because when I go on a trip, I always think I can pack one more thing. Any of you? Any of those that uh, personality are like if I can just go like this a little bit more, I can just, you know, pack that extra pair of shoes or something. I I I I can do it. And so this this was given to me as a gift. And the second time I used it, I broke the zipper because it's so packed full. And that's oftentimes kind of if we can use this as kind of an image of some of these terms that we have to, we have to unpack. And the reason we have a suitcase is we want to get as much stuff as possible from point A to point B, the quickest way possible. And that's the same way with some of these terms. So we're going to talk about things like atonement, things like holiness and judgment and love. And, and these are loaded words. And to, to pretend we can take 30 minutes to unpack them all uh, would be ridiculous. But we do want to do is, is the point of a suitcase is not to look at the suitcase. The point of a suitcase is to look at what's inside. And so that's our goal tonight with those four terms. And my hope is that as we unpack these four terms that the cross becomes more alive and becomes more vivid and profound in our lives today. And that would be the farthest thing from ordinary. It be the farthest thing that you couldn't walk by a cross without it just stopping you. In your tracks, because of the profound nature that it offers and the gift that it offers us through the sacrifice of Jesus. So, the first thing we're gonna do is we're gonna unpack this word atonement. Now, atonement is probably not something you even said this week, right? It's not a word you throw around at the office. It's not something you talk about with your buddies. It's not something you sit down and chat with over coffee. Most likely, unless you're a Bible nerd like myself. But the reality is this this word is oftentimes we read about it, we sing about it, but we oftentimes really don't have a clue as far as what that is. But John, one of the closest apostles to Jesus, one of the closest followers and apprentices of Jesus, writes this in a sermon that he wrote. Is in First John chapter two. He says, "My dear children, I write this to you, so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the here it is atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world." And so one of the best ways we can understand the sacrifice of Jesus and understand the cross is to understand what atonement looked like in the world. So this word atonement in English is best understood as this idea of at-one-ment, right? It's this reconciliation word. It's bringing back into order what's in disorder. And, that, and that's, that's an okay translation. It's probably closer to reconciliation. <coughs> but this Greek or this English word is trying to translate this Greek word halasmus. And this is the word that John chooses to use here, which does sound a lot like reconciliation or ransom. But what John is trying to do is what we're trying to do. He's trying to interpret a Hebrew idea that would have been very common, and it's this idea of kippur. And if it's my, probably more familiar to you is kippur. Have you ever heard of the, the, the Jewish holiday, Yom Kippur? The Day of Atonement. And, and kippur is the verb, kippur is the noun, and so when we talk about atonement, it, we have to go back into a Jewish history and mindset to understand what is he talking about, this idea of atonement, and how does that correlate with the cross that Jesus died upon? And it's, first we have to understand this word, this Hebrew understanding of kaper is probably best translated, and most scholars would agree, this idea of cover. And so let me give you kind of an illustration to, to, to describe what I mean. Uh, so, uh, so let's say me and uh, me and James went out to lunch this week, right? Had some amazing tacos. And let's say I'm, I'm eating tacos with James, and, and I was at the very end I'm like, oh, man, James, I'm so sorry I forgot my wallet, which really happened. I'm just kidding. And, and then James just looks at me, and, she, and he's like, you know what, Benji, I forgive you. And I'm like, wow, thanks, James. And then our, our waiter or waitress comes and gives us the bill, and I'm like, it's okay. James has forgiven me. See, that, that's one part, but the reality is that that's not atonement. That's not covering. What covering is, is not only does James forgive me that I left my wallet, but he actually says, let me pay that bill for you. I'm like, man, thank you so much. It was really kind of you. Thank you for that compare, that atonement, a covering of my debt. But beyond that, there's a third tier of what happens if we have lunch every single week and I forget my wallet every single week. Well, all of a sudden, there is now not just a financial strain, there's a relational strain that's happening with me and James's relationship, right? Because all of a sudden, we're like, what's going on here? But this is exactly what atonement means. It means not only are you forgiven for your fault, not only is that debt paid, but atonement goes a step further and says it makes relational amends for the consistent failure in that relationship. So atonement is this packed Full word that goes so much beyond just this idea of something's forgiven or done away with. No, no, no. It actually bears a weight, it does work. It's an active, profound word that we have to understand to, in order to understand the cross. And so in the Old Testament, this idea of atonement is introduced through something called sacrifice animal sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. And it's this idea that if you were to make amends, to pay this ransom, that when you sin, when you bring death into the world, whether that's through cheating on your neighbor or whether that's through committing adultery or whatever form that may be, you are introducing death and according to God's law, there has to be atonement for that. And so what he did is he, he gave us this system of animal sacrifices that that animal would have its blood spilled so that it could make the atonement for the sins that you created. And so uh, Leviticus 17, 11 shines light on this and it says this, For the life of the creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement, to make prepare for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's Life. So this is huge, okay? A couple of things. One, you cannot have atonement without blood. And the reason for that is not some gross barbaric culture. What that means is blood in Hebrew culture is a symbol for life. You cannot have atonement unless life is given. You cannot ruin life without it being atoned for by life itself. And so here we have a picture of the the ancient kind of Hebrew sacrificial system. What would, he, would be? And what's interesting is, let's just say I, I sinned. Right? I forgot my wallet again. I cheated my neighbor. I did something wrong. I would kind of go to where that section number one is, and I would take an animal, and I would let that animal bleed out for me. Its life would be in place of my life. But what would happen is if the nation sinned, the nation of Israel sinned, is they would go into that second location, that more holy place, and they would make atonement for their, the people's sin. But those people had a high priest, and that priest's job was to represent God to the people and the people to God. And if that high priest sinned, or if the nation had a, a sin that was kind of unbearable once a year, that that high priest would go and make atonement for him. His sin and the people's sin. But this is what's interesting, and I realized before, is the greater the weight of the sin, the closer the sacrifice has to be to the presence of God. The closer you have to actually spill that life, be closer to the presence of God based on that sin. And so this is kind of this idea that is packed for, and this is where a couple of things we have to take away before we move on to our next term we have to unpack. One, sin is weighty. And we live in a culture that just loves to sweep the idea of sin under the rug. But what's funny about our culture is that it doesn't play by the rules. It's been interesting, and my wife has observed in this past year as we have begun to uncover uh, these horrific events of men taking advantage of women, and women finally having the courage to stand up and say, this is not right, and there's justice being done. And what's so funny in all of this is, Jen's like, you know, what's so funny. We live in a culture that says sin doesn't matter until it does. It really does matter. And we want justice to be made. We want there to be atonement. Someone has to pay for the evil, the horrific deeds that have been done. And so we live in a culture that actually cries out for atonement. Someone's got to pay for this. And so this is not some historic thing we're starting about. No, 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 our culture is crying for atonement. We're crying for someone's got to pay this debt and make right the wrongs and the, the severing that's happened in relationship and in our world. So to begin to understand what the atoning work of Jesus was, we have to unpack another term, and that term is something we talked about last week. It is the holiness of God. And the reason we have to understand that is a lot of times we can be like, well, what's the point? Why does there have to be atonement for our sin? And and the idea is that we have to understand the holiness of God to understand the need for there to be atonement in the first place. And so if you didn't hear last week's message, you can go back and listen to the podcast. But one of the things we see here is the great, one of the most vivid pictures we have of the holiness of God is when Isaiah, the prophet, sees him in Isaiah chapter 6, high and lifted up, it's Jesus on the throne, and it says in verse 3, and they were calling one to another. These angelic creatures are calling one to another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now this is fascinating because if I were walking on the street and I went to you and I said, fill in the blank. God is what? What would you say? God is what? Love is the, the most common answer because it's scriptural. It's scriptural. It's true, but did you know that the only attribute of God in Scripture that is repeated three times in a row is not love, it's holy? That there's something about Scripture that says before we can understand the love of God, and we're going to get into this tonight, we have to understand that this God is holy. The power and the majesty and the glory that this God possesses is unlike anything we could ever imagine. He is completely self-sufficient. He's before all things. He's all-powerful. He's everywhere. He knows all things. And the holiness of God is so huge that it is the only attribute that the Hebrew writer reserves to say it three times, which would have been the superlative. The highest kind of ranking you could have given in Hebrew literature is the holiness of God. Which leads us to our third term we have to unpack is this idea of how holiness relates to judgment. And, and, and stick with me because all the dots are going to connect here. And the reason why this is significant and important, let me explain it like this in kind of illustration. So, so Josh, Josh is one of my new friends. And let's just say I went up to Josh and I just slapped him. So imagine, it's really funny. Like just for no reason. He didn't do anything wrong, right? He didn't kick my puppy, I don't have a puppy, but I just went up and just slapped him across the face. What what would Josh's reaction be? Well, probably shocked, confused. He may slap me back. I don't know. He may turn into joke, but it'd be odd, and we'd probably move on and and you know carry on with our relationship. But remember that one time he slapped me, and but strange. But let's just for a second pretend that I took the exact same amount of strength and force that I slapped Josh with and I slapped a police officer. What would happen? Would he be like, "That, that was strange?" <laughs> no, I would be arrested, right for assaulting a police officer. I didn't hit him harder, right? He's still just a human. Now, despite your political political persuasion, what would happen if I went and slapped the president? The, The idea is before I could even get to him, I would have been shot. I would have been dead. I couldn't even throw my hand back without losing my life. For the very same act I could have done to Josh, we could have shrugged it off and moved on. And the idea is that the greater degree of holiness that someone possesses, the greater degree of punishment is required for an act of sin. So here's the question. What happens when I slap God? I mean, it doesn't, doesn't take a theologian to understand what happens when you slap different people in different degrees of status. But what happens when I'm not only slapping a human being, because Scripture describes it like this, that I was at once an enemy of God. That when I sin, I am choosing in my own right that I know better. I will define my own good and bad. And what I am doing is I am essentially slapping God across the face. And that requires action, the same way it requires action from Josh, the police officer, the president. Every single day, there are moments where I slap God across the face with my own pride, with my own rebellion, with my own selfishness. And because this God we serve is not just the God of love, but because he is the holy God, that holy God requires a just judgment. You see, we love justice, but we hate judgment. And you cannot have one without the other. And so this holy God, in his righteousness, when we sin against him, requires there to be a penalty paid. And he gave us a gift of a sacrificial system, right? He's like, I'm not going to pour it out on you, but I'm going to pour it out on another life. And it's going to be the life of an animal, an innocent animal. It's going to take your penalty for you. But listen how God describes judgment when he gives judgment to his people that, by the way, we deserve it. I think it's so funny. I'm like, I can't believe in a God that judges. I'm like, I can't believe in a God that doesn't. Listen to how it describes judgment. Isaiah 51 says, Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord, listen to this, the cup of his wrath. Who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. Verse 20 says, Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Listen to this. Behold, I have taken, you from, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. Now, this is huge. Because what it just describes is that somehow, not just in Isaiah, but in Jeremiah and other parts of Scripture, God's just wrath and judgment is often connected to a cup or a bowl. And again, it doesn't make a lot of sense in our world, but in that world, that that pouring out would have been a, a royal sign of judgment. And so when it talks about Israel's rebellion and the wrath that they're undergoing and the sin that they have acquired, it's talking about this, there's been wrath, this cup has been poured out upon them. But what's so funny in Isaiah 51, right before it starts talking about the Messiah, it says, this cup you've been drinking, you will drink no more, which kind of leaves you in this cliffhanger in the Old Testament. Where did the cup go? Where is the judgment of God? Did he change no, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Where did it go? So let's fast forward about 700 years into Matthew's gospel, verse 20, or chapter 26, verse 36, and let's listen to maybe one of the most emotionally crushing moments of Jesus' life, and let's begin to start connecting the dots here. Matthew 26, verse 36 says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. You guys just hear the humanity in Jesus' voice there. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. So let me get this straight. Jesus, in his greatest hour of anxiety, his greatest hour of anticipation and fear, he doesn't mention death, pain, nails, thorns, whips. He mentions a cup. You see, the crushing weight on Jesus' soul was not the martyr's death he was about to die because there have been thousands of martyrs that have died heroically. No, 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 no. The weight he was feeling was the weight of a cup of wrath that has been reserved for you and me. A cup we've earned. And Jesus says that "If there's no other way for this cup to be drinking unless I drink it. Your will be done. If you turn to the next page in Matthew 27, in, in the description of Jesus' death, he says this. From noon until tr- three in the afternoon, darkness came over all of the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lema, Sabatani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah, Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine and vinegar, put it on his staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Here's Jesus on the cross. And the moment before his spirit is given up, he says something that I am convinced is this cup. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, this this is not something Jesus is making up. He's quoting Psalm 22. He's quoting the words of David. As David predicts the coming Messiah, he's saying, I am the promised one, I am coming. But he quotes something that's really interesting. And Even though he's quoting it, this is the only time in all of Jesus' ministry that we have recording him calling God anything other than Father. I mean, think about this. In the moment of his greatest pain, the greatest moment of the cup of God's wrath being poured on him, did not come from another spear to the side, another physical pain. It came from this moment where he says, my God, where have you gone? Why have you forsaken me? And then that moment where he could not call God father is because his father had turned his back so that for eternity we could call him father. For eternity, we would have the right of intimacy in the presence of God because Jesus in his moment said, I will allow for the first time in the entire eternity of the universe to have my Father's face turned from me. My friends, that is the most vivid picture of hell there is. It is the absence of God's presence. And Jesus underwent undertook that pain. So you and I did not have to. He stood there and he cried out in that moment. Something happened. If you keep reading, he says, at that moment, right? At the moment when Jesus and the Father, the Son and the Father had this moment of cosmic divine wrath and punishment of divine separation. I don't know how that works with the Trinity. I don't understand the mystery of it. All I know is this. At that moment when the Father and the Son were separated, it says at that moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That temple was what contained the presence of God. And that as The Father and the Son had a moment of separation. was the very first moment in human history since the Garden that God's presence was no longer contained to a place because Jesus had absorbed the cup of God's wrath so that you and I could become the righteousness of Christ. That we now have access to God's presence once again because Jesus denied himself access to the presence of his Father because of the cross. So the temple... is torn from top to bottom. Since says, The rocks split, the earth shook, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those who were with them guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. You see, when we look at the cross, It should leave us breathless. It demands a response. Demands a response. Surely this is the Son of God. See, we've unpacked atonement, the forgiveness, the debt that was paid, the relational tension that was restored, where this holy God gave his righteous judgment on his son and not you. Which leads us to our fourth term to unpack, and that term is love. John, the first scripture we read, continues in that same sermon as he's writing in chapter four, four, verse seven. He says this, tell me if you can find the theme in here. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as what? An atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another no one has ever seen god but if we love one another god lives in us and his love is made complete in us you see as john in the moment as he's riding under the inspiration of the holy spirit reflects on the atoning sacrifice of god the atoning sacrifice that jesus made he just says this is all about love this is love there's no more vivid and accurate condensed uh, description of love than jesus on the cross it changes us because god is love and it makes makes us love one another, and so for John, it says, the cross, the atonement, God's holiness, his judgments that led to his wrath being poured out to Jesus on the cross, leaves us with one response, and that is love. You've been loved. You didn't love God first. God loved you first. While you were still dead in your trespasses, Christ died for you. So let me tell you a story that helps. That helped this come alive in my own life. You had to promise me you're never going to tell Zoe, though. Deal? <laughs> you laugh. Um, so a couple years back, we were living in Escondido and um, my kids started doing Awana. We have any Awana kids in here? Come on. Growing up, wanna bucks, sparks. I mean, this is... This is what it was all about. So if you don't know what that is, that's probably better. I'm um, just kidding. It was great. It's kind of like Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, but like with the kind of a Bible-themed thing, and you can like earn badges and stuff like that. My kids loved it, right, loved it. And one of the things at the end of every year Iwana would do is a Pinewood Derby race. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? They've done this for years, and I didn't know that even though I think I did a wander for a couple weeks when I was a kid. I, I didn't know that this was kind of like a big deal. And so they give you a block of wood and some plastic wheels and like, hey, take this home, paint it. I'm like, great, this is going to be super fun. So I take it home, give it to Zoe and Jubilee, my nine-year-old and six-year-old who were a couple years ago, so like seven, five. I'm like, hey, here you go. Start painting these. And um, and it just, it's beautiful, right? It looks like Corolla threw up just on these wood blocks and And I'm the least handy guy in the world, so I, like, glue these wheels to them, and I'm just like, great, you know, no big deal. And I show up, and it's, I had no idea. You guys, it was the most decorated, like, racetrack, thing like that. Everyone has literally, like, shellacked their cars. A kid, you not, bought liquid graphite for the wheels. I was like, oh, this is not good. (laughs) This is not good. And so I look at my kids, like, art puke, right, and I know they can't go fast, and they're like, like, dad, this is so exciting, I'm like, oh, not for long, and, and so we go, and they like line the cars up, and there's like four on a track, and they're like three, it's like, they have like lights, it's all official, and it's like, you know, red, yellow, green, and they go down the tracks, so, and Zoe so just goes, it doesn't even make it to the flat part, guys, gravity's not even helping my kid, right, And Zoe bursts into tears. She's like, oh, she's so embarrassed. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh. And I do what every loving father would do. And I pulled her in close. And I said, sweetheart, they gave you the bad lane. I'm so sorry. This is a life lesson for you. Sometimes you get put on a hard lane. You just got to persevere through it, right? And they're like, heat number two. I was like, oh, no. And they, like, changed the track. And she's like, grabs She's like, they changed the track. I'm like, oh, God. Don't lie. Different sermon. Anyways, so they like, you know, red, yellow, green, berp, er, just stops. Even worse this time. She bursts in tears again. She's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, I don't know. Someone like someone did this to you. <laughs> so, I got there feeling horrible. Like, this is such a low point as a dad. And then all of a sudden it gets even worse because like at the end of like the torch, there's four heats. So I'm like, just stop racing my daughter's car, for crying out loud. At the end of the 14th, they're like, okay, now for the trophy ceremony. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, really, there's trophies? And then they're like, and we have the best trophy for best design. And Zoe, like, looks up at me. She's like, Dad, you told me mine's the prettiest. (laughs) Good, good, right? (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, baby, (laughs) you got this. And so they call the names of the winners for the race, but she obviously didn't win. They call the names of the winners of the creative designs, and she obviously does not win, and she loses it. Like, she's the most compassionate heart and just is is devastated. In her world, her world has just ended. And I'm holding her, and she's sobbing, and her face is red, and she's, like, trying to catch her breath. And I'm like, let's go home, sweetheart. I'm like, I'm so sorry. Like, seriously, like, I'm so heavy hearted. And this girl, I don't even know, comes up behind her and says, excuse me. And so he looks at her and like, and she's like, you didn't hear they called your name. You got first place. You got first place for design. And my seven-year-old daughter literally like just looks at her. But I can't believe it. And she takes this trophy so gingerly and holds it and she's like really and she's like this is yours and she just holds it so close and her tears of pain turn to tears of joy and i look at this girl i don't even know and i just grab her shoulder i'm like thank you so much and at this moment where i'm like literally overwhelmed as a dad i feel like the holy spirit just whispers me and says that's what i did for you on the cross Guys, and it like ruined me in, my, in, the, in the simplicity and the innocence of my daughter. Realizing in that moment, she was given a gift she didn't earn. She was given a gift that she didn't deserve. She was given a gift that someone else earned, someone else deserved, someone else worked for her, And they went up behind her, didn't even know who she was, didn't deserve it, wasn't a best friend. Just went up to a complete stranger and said, this is for you. And Jesus is like, this is what I did for you on the cross. I gave you my righteousness, and I took on your sin. I became your curse so that you could have a life and a victory and an inheritance that you could never earn. And literally, I start crying in this little Baptist basement. Like, I'm just like, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for what you've done for me. And then I watch Zoe, and she kind of stands up, and all of a sudden something strange starts happening. She kind of goes. She just starts walking around. She has like a swagger about her. She's like walking around. She's like, did you, see, did "You see this?" Like I kid you or not. And she like goes up to her little sisters, and she's like, "You know what, guys? Better luck next year." And I'm like furious, and I can't say anything, right? I'm just in my bed. I'm like, that's not, you. you didn't earn that. You can't just go and pridefully and arrogantly just show that off. Like you earned it. And then Jesus just speaks to me just so gently says, you do that too. Oh my gosh, you guys. I lost it. Because if I'm honest with you, sometimes, Especially a few years ago, me being up here felt like a trophy that I had worked for. the Holy Spirit says, you didn't earn any of it. And when the slightest bit of self-righteousness comes in and you can smell it, he's like, it's repulsive. You didn't earn it. Why is it that that we rely on the cross to save us but we don't rely on the cross for us to live? We should wake up every morning with this branded into our imaginations because it is because of the free gift of God. It is because of the grace of God that we are not only saved, but it is how we live from day to day. He who began a good work in us will be faithful to carry it to completion until the day of our Lord Jesus. You see, this is not an event we study. No, this is a reality we live in. Every single day that he gives us every morning, he says that every morning is new mercy. See, every morning there's the cross. Every morning when you don't deserve it and you wake up and you're like, I haven't earned this today, Jesus, I'm giving it to you anyway. And it's also a reminder that when you wake up and you feel great and you've been reading your Bible and you're going to church and you're starting to feel like, man, I'm glad I'm not those people, would it just slap us in the face and say, you didn't earn it either. See, the cross is the greatest gift of hope, but it also is the greatest source of humility. The cross should change us every day day we can't be the same we can't be the same if we understand atonement and the holiness and the judgment of God we can't be the same when we understand love this is love if they laid down their life his friend i'm going to invite you just to close your eyes for a moment And as you do, I'm going to invite, if is around, you can come up and just play softly behind me. And, and as you close your eyes, and the reason I do this isn't make it more spiritual, but I think it just helps us to focus. That you're not looking at me anymore, you're not thinking about your neighbor. Would you think about you? My first question is this. Have you been trying to earn your own righteousness? Have you been trying to heal yourself? Have you been trying to win your own trophy of salvation through works and morality and meditation, through money and achievement? And tonight you're just hit with the faith, with the reality that it is by grace and grace alone. You've never received the atoning work of the cross. You've never said, Jesus, forgive me. I cannot do this on my own. I need you to save me. My hope is that tonight is your night. I'm going to give you a moment here just to pray that, but there may be some of you other on the other end of the spectrum where you you prayed the prayer, you followed Jesus, and somehow you've allowed your own, own works your own self-righteousness to dictate how your spiritual walk is and tonight the cross would be a wake-up call to God's mercy and grace so what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to read the lyrics of a hymn that was written by a guy named Stuart Townsend called how deep the father's love when you let them hit you in your soul where it's needed how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss when the Father turns His face away as the wounds which mar the chosen one brings many sons to glory. Behold, The man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all of my heart his wounds have paid my ransom.